Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I am so excited to speak to my dear, dear friend, Micah Gibson, who is an international tax director at the big four accounting firm, PwC, and he's based in Washington, D.C. Mike is a graduate of Georgetown Law, from which he holds both his JD and his LLM, Go Hoyas, and Arizona State University, Go Sun Devils. I'll just add, Mike has been a big personal supporter of the podcast from the very beginning, and I'm just grateful I finally convinced him to be interviewed. So welcome to the podcast, Micah. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. I'm excited, Jenna. Awesome. So let's start by talking about your practice. So I know you've, we personally have talked about your practice a lot, but I'm really curious how you describe what you do to someone unfamiliar with tax or even someone not that familiar with the sort of legal industry. Anyone who's interested in making money will pay tax at some point. I work with companies of all varieties, but primarily companies, not individuals, on figuring out the tax consequences of their business operations. And that includes the tax liability, that includes how to report it, and everything like that. I specifically focus on international tax, and that can mean a lot of things. So every time people do business across borders, there's a whole web of different rules from different countries. I focus on the U.S. tax rules for when you know companies do business across borders. And there's a lot there. Whenever there are lots of different jurisdictions interested in business activity, you have to make sure that, that everything lines up. So I guess the other question is, I think when people think of tax lawyers or lawyers who practice in the tax space, they have a lot of trouble differentiating them from like the accountants that they may know or the people who like fill out or help you fill out your taxes every year. I imagine that's not what you're doing. You're doing a lot more sort of strategic planning, working at different stages in deals, helping companies make decisions in advance. But what is the different role that you play versus, say, even an accountant that works with businesses? There's less of a difference today than there's ever been. So one, I work at an accounting firm. You know, We are not engaged in the practice of law. I'm trained as a lawyer, and I work sort of hand-in-hand with accountants and lawyers every day. And so, yes, there's a lot of strategic work. There's a lot of understanding changes in law and other authorities that develop in tax about as quickly as any area of the law. And that's one of the things that's a big part of my practice is, is figuring out what is changing and when it's changing. But yesterday, I was on a call reading instructions to a form with a team that really needed to fill out the form that day. And we read them together and figured out why the form instructions said a particular thing and how it related to the law. So it, it really is everything. Because the line between determining substantive tax risk and reporting the tax, there isn't that much of a line at a certain point, And you need the same people figuring out both things. And I want to follow up on that point you just made about sort of be needing to be an expert in a fast-moving area of law. 
and sort of being an expert in in sources of authority that other lawyers and non-lawyers may be less familiar with. So I guess talk to me a little bit about sort of what materials are you using on a regular basis and how do you keep up with all of that? First of all, how do you get up to speed? And then how do you keep up with sort of how it changes? There is a lot, right? There's a tax code. There are a lot of tax regulations. Like any other area of the law, there's a great deal of case law. And then there are mostly different decisions that come out of the IRS. So some things are published by the IRS. Some things the IRS sort of discloses through informal or formal you know, requests for those information. And then there are a lot of tax publications that publish all of the new rulings coming out of the IRS show up in tax notes you know, over the course of a week. You do have to start with a specialty area. Tax is too big to keep up on everything that's changing day-to-day, week-to-week. And once you have specialty in an area, you follow developments, you follow the new rulings. It's funny, I can tell you all of the rulings and advice from IRS chief counsel to local IRS teams, et cetera, et cetera, all these different authorities that we see. I can tell you what's come out in my practice area in the last six, seven years, because day to day, if it came out and it's in an area I practice in, I have to read it. And I think, especially talking to litigators, the biggest difference is I need to know what the law is today. Sometimes when we get to reporting, you know, we need to know what the law was for last year when we're filling out a tax return. But most of the time when I'm talking to clients about a deal or expanding their business in a particular way, we need to know what the law is today. And we need to have an idea of changes in tax policy and what it's going to look like, what what it's likely to look like in the future. And just as sort of practical matter of brass tacks, like how do you keep up with all of that in addition to doing all of the sort of client-centered work that I that I imagine you have to do? I learned as a 2L that tax professionals have to read publications. It was always with a bowl of cereal, um, as, as it was taught to me, but it, it's just a normal thing that you flip through tax headlines. I'm fortunate enough working at at PwC, we have a group of people who do a lot of that as part of their jobs for sort of internal facing roles. They're monitoring things and we all have contacts in various places. So sometimes finding out that a court decision came out an hour earlier and telling a, a group of, you know, hundreds or thousands of clients about the decision first, that can lead to business relationships, that can lead to client relationships. And so really we're monitoring things sometimes minute to minute when new regulations are expected to come out. We're managing that minute to minute to figure out, you know, yes, they come out and then, you know, we read them. I have a, a, a bookshelf worth of, um, full of binders behind me of, of different regulations that have come out that I, you know, have a process of how I read them and highlight them and send emails to, to my colleagues about, you know, what are we seeing? What's important? What, what do we need to tell our clients about today? And then what do we need to start thinking through in more detail for more sort of substantive work that's not just getting the word out? Well, I can I can attest to those listening that there are binders behind Micah's head, and I have seen them in person. Before we move on to sort of other changes in the law, I guess I am curious a little bit if you'd talk to me about your process for sort of digesting all of this information, right? Because I think one of the challenges that I've heard from lots of different people in lots of different practice areas is that we live in a world of sort of unlimited information, right? You can get anything on Westlaw. You can get anything on Google. Things are coming out every second on Twitter and LinkedIn and other social networks. 
how do you sort of, what's your process for filtering sort of the signal and the noise in your industry? I think there are two. One of them is having some kind of specialization in international tax. I specialize in the foreign tax credit, which is a few sections of the tax code. But if anything happens about the foreign tax credit, I need to know about it immediately. And I need to tell a bunch of other people about it immediately. But then there are topics that are are important for particular clients and for particular transactions that are ongoing or, or that we've done recently. And that's about knowing what all the different pressure points were and continue to be for clients and, and keeping your finger on the pulse of broader areas. You can't specialize in, in everything. I think there does have to be a split between that deep specialty area that I really do. I read everything that comes out. I read comment letters that are made by other organizations when, when they're post-regulations on, on the topics that I care about, for example. But then it's just anything that affects my clients and having a really good network of people when I need to call someone. PwC is a very big firm with a lot of different silos on all different specialty areas that we try not to turn into silos. So when I need help on a partnership tax issue, I know the exact people who I need to call because I need help with that. Got it. And did your specialty of sort of say the foreign tax credit, did you find it or did it find you? I found it. It was lucky though. It was my, my second or third year out of school. It was really hard and I was fascinated by how hard it could be. And so I just asked for work and people who volunteer to do hard things are often rewarded. Sometimes the reward is is more hard things and that's that can be tough, right? I think that happens for everybody. But I just liked it because it's not something that that everyone who I work with was attracted to. And I, I felt like it was it was worthwhile. And since tax reform, right, in, in 2017, it has become even more important. So I got lucky, really. There was a chance that it, it would have gone the other way, right? That you pick a specialty and the law changes and, and then you need to pick a new one. I got lucky and it's it's been great. I love that. I love that the idea of picking hard things as a way of being rewarded, right? Because hard things are often what people are coming to their service professionals to focus on. There was an old joke at the firm I used to work at at Williams & Connolly when a new associate would go to a senior partner and say something like, well, we don't really have a path to victory in this case. And the partner was trained by Ed Bennett Williams to basically say, if there was an easier, clear way for us to answer this case, they wouldn't be coming to us. It's that's sort of an institutional version of what you're talking about in terms of hard things. I think that's fascinating and a really good, smart point. It's also a good reminder that you didn't know it until you were a couple years out, right? You didn't have to decide that when you were in law school or getting your LLM. You kind of had to get your feet wet and see what was out there. The only other thing I'd say about that is, sure, it was hard and that was attractive. I also liked working with the people who were already specializing in that area. Without that, there's no chance, right? And so you go back to get work from the people who you like working with. And it happened to be that this was a good area. Sure, but that's essential. It doesn't matter how much you like the subject matter if you don't like the people. 100%. It's the same reason, right? I think we've discussed this before when you people ask, oh, what classes should I take? And people say, well, this class sounds interesting. And it's like, great, but who's teaching it? Because how you're going to get that experience is so driven by who you work with. It's also a good reminder for senior people why it's worth being a good person to work with because you get better people to come work with you. You know, the last point that I want to sort of thread that I want to pick at related to this is this is the fact that we did just come through sort of a once in a 
I don't know, half generation, I don't know how you would describe it, rewrite of the tax code. What was it like to sort of be on the ground as a mid-ish level person working in this area as the law was fundamentally changing in a way that it doesn't change even every decade? It was career-defining in a lot of ways. I think a lot of people see see a change in their work when they hit about 10,000 hours or Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours. I was right there when the law changed. So I knew I knew what the key pressure points were under the old law. I knew how to speak the language, you know, like many other practice areas, tax lawyers have like very specialized language that's obnoxious to anyone who isn't one of us. So I could speak the language and I knew what people were generally focused on. And then the law changed, but I didn't have habits that were based on following the law from essentially 1986 to 2017. And so as we worked on things, I found myself adapting faster than more senior people who had spent an entire career focused on particular ways that the law worked. I made it a point of finding things that I would know well. And once I got some validation, I made it a point to be loud about the things that I knew. And so if they came up in other conversations, I'd raise my hand and I'd say, actually, that's that's changed. That's not something that that's necessarily a priority anymore. Or actually, that used to be good and it's bad or vice versa, right? We, there are a lot of things that change when there are big changes in the law. And tax policy is a funny thing because what the Congress wants to emphasize or behaviors they want to change or how they want to tax certain income completely changes as the economy changes, really. We have a very digital economy where a lot of the high-value businesses are digital or, or medical or pharmaceutical, and that really changes the nature of taxation and, and the rules that we use. And so rules built for that are completely different and have different pressure points. Being a junior-ish person at the time was huge. So it was an opportunity for me to be a leader in the way that people develop thoughts, right? We, we developed ways of understanding the new law, and I, I tried to lead in the little ways that I could being about five years in. And everything was different after that because I proved to the people that I worked with that I I could stand behind an idea and they could trust me if, if I said that was the answer. It reminds me a lot of the people I've talked about who work in sort of new areas of the law. So that could be, I've talked to people in cryptocurrency, in the cannabis space, basically anywhere where the law is fundamentally changing, being ready to sort of intuit those changes and turn around and implement them is one of those sort of, you can't plan for it, <laughs> but when it's there, you really have to focus on it. And it sounds like that's that's sort of what you had to do. It's funny because it comes back to a lot of nuts and bolts, things like statutory interpretation, right? When literally, we're just reading drafts of a bill coming out of Congress and not a lot of formal legislative history. And then, okay, now we have the law. And from there, no one has an advantage, right? Everyone has exactly the same things. Anyone is practicing in the area, and so it's just what you do with it. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, sort of, what's your what's your pitch for people to take tax in law school or to sort of learn a little bit about tax law? And I'll just say that tax turn, federal income tax, so tax one, turned out to be one of my favorite classes in law school, even though I never practiced in the area because it really was a class, at least federal income tax, was really a class about policy priorities, what they were, and how the government could incentivize them in different ways. So I always tell students who are interested in policy that taxes, it can be an interesting class to take or a good fit. And also, as you said, people who are really interested in digging into sets of rules and interpretations of those rules. 
So I found tax to have a lot of similarities, for example, with civil procedure or with evidence, sort of rule-based areas. But what's your pitch to people to sort of take their first tax class? Tax is so creative of an area. I think that's not the stereotype of when you think of a tax lawyer. Totally. Not at all. But you can't find an area of the law that has more different fact patterns that exist in the wild every day. There are so many taxpayers. When we think about other kinds of law or regulations, I feel like when people talk about regulation, the stereotypical regulation is environmental regulation. But there are only so many different power plants that are feasible for making power. And so the government focuses on those, right, and regulates those. There are so many different ways to make money that the tax rules have to be general and they have to be specific in specific areas. And knowing your specialty area and being able to understand how it relates to the others presents an amazing opportunity to be creative because you will always find a client that has facts that map onto the rules differently. I love that. That's I, I had never thought about it that way, but it makes so much sense that the more fact patterns and the fact that they're always changing, business looks different even than when you started practicing not that long ago because our economy has fundamentally changed because of the COVID-19 crisis, because of lots of different things. And it's reactive, but I love that as a creative posture. What do you think as a result makes people sort of who are good at what you do stand out? Or to ask that question another way, what should someone look in the mirror and see, or what should someone know about themselves that might make them think, huh, this actually might be a better practice area than what it seems on its face? I think it is direct problem solving with clients. That's the skill set day to day. Starting out, you own the facts because you don't know enough about the law to do anything else. This is, I think, common. And then you develop more and more to own different parts of the law and the analysis. And then your clients need help. And you work with them to come to answers when there's an obvious answer, or there's this interesting three-part relationship that we often have between inside of a company, people who want to do something from the business perspective, the tax department, which I think for most of the people you talk to, you're talking about OGC and, and not the tax department, but fine, right? It's, it's other people who own this other work stream and me, right? The advisor, we need to come up the way where the business can operate without being subject to you know, triple tax in three different jurisdictions, right? That's not feasible. You can't make any money that way. You need to be able to really understand facts, understand how a business makes money. Like, what are the value drivers for this business? I need to know that about my clients and what can change and what can't change. So a lot of people come to tax from a business perspective. A lot of people who sort of have undergraduate business degrees think about going into tax as a part of the law that they actually know more about than other people do, right? They understand some of this decision-making. They understand the language that's both internal business language and some of it is, frankly, accounting language about how we quantify all of these different things. I think that comes together to be a skill set for tax. Tell me a little bit more about what your actual days are like. Like if I sort of awkwardly sat in your office and watched you and your clients let me watch you for a day, what kinds of things would I see you doing? And sort of what are the sort of keystone tasks that define your day-to-day -day life? 30-minute phone calls. Between eight and 15 or more 30-minute phone calls. A lot of that has to do with PwC and the way we're set up and where I sit in the organization. I don't own my own clients. The people who I work with here in DC were sort of a, a technical center 
where we talk to folks in the government who have the same specialty areas that we do, and we have have subject matter ownership over particular areas. And so the majority of most of my days is talking to people around the country and around the world whose clients have issues in my specialty area and, and they need a little bit more technical advice, right? They they know the rules, but this is a little bit more complicated today. And so they talk to me, talking to clients, trying to figure out what the pressure points are for them at a given moment in time. How's the business changing? Is there a deal on the horizon? And then there are big cycles of changes in law. We are still in the post-2017 tax reform cycle of new regulations in all sorts of different areas. And that's not day-to-day, but if you pick a month where where new regulations come out, I'm going to spend half of my time reading them, talking about them, getting in a room with 10 people, and just scribbling out what we think the new rules mean because they're, they're fundamental changes. So I'd say those are the three things that I do all day in terms of talking to colleagues, talking to clients, and, and keeping up with the law. So that's really interesting because I think maybe it's the accounting connection or maybe it's the fact that lawyers aren't known for numbers, but tax is a numbers-based enterprise. I sort of think of the stereotype of the of the tax lawyer as someone who spends their their whole day crunching numbers with a calculator. And I'm sure that's part of it, but what you just described is a very communal exercise, a very client-driven exercise, and an exercise, candidly, that is much more based on working through a problem than sort of sitting as a bookish math person in a room and solving for X. I think a lot of it has to do with with clients and what clients need. You could have a practice of sitting and learning and you could learn the most you possibly would, but no, no one wants to pay you for that. And so you have to come up with a practice that you are being responsive to clients who you can help. Patent law is not just about the substantive patent you know, application patent defense, right? It's about everything in the life cycle and clients and what they need. It's not just the book work. And I do think that accounting firms' business models are different enough from most law firms that, that it emphasizes this. I think a fundamental point is that accountants go to business school and not law school as a general matter, right? I work in an organization that's led by MBAs. And so there is a little bit more business emphasis that I think you get for the first several years at a law firm, just based on the personalities and priorities of people in the room. And I think that that says a lot. Also, there are four big accounting firms. I mean, there, there are hundreds, thousands of accounting firms, obviously, but there are four big ones. There are different kinds of client relationships. I will work on matters for 30, 40 clients in a month because we have a broad client base around the country and people who need technical help come to me for the things that I specialize in. It really does reemphasize the fact that it all comes back to the clients. And you need a client who has that particular question to look at the question. And it makes sense then why being being a specialist and getting more experience makes you a better sort of practitioner in the space because you've experienced more, you've experienced more things, you're better at issue spotting, and you're better at giving advice. I guess my other question is, what kinds of communication are you doing on a regular basis? Like, I know you said you're getting lots of 30-minute phone calls with either internal or external clients. Is there also a lot of writing, a lot of email, a lot of presentation design? Like, what sort of media are you using to convey your analysis? Email first, always email first. Um, I think that's true for everyone. 
but there are certain kinds of communications that don't work in emails. Our ultimate deliverables on the highest, highest stakes matters are opinions, right? We give our opinion that ultimately a court would decide that the tax treatment of this you know, income is X, Y, or Z. And that is the highest stakes version of something. And that has a lot of, there are a lot of conventions of that kind of communication, right? There are magic words of all kinds and you learn what to say and what not to say and what clients expect, right? They make representations to us. We describe the fact and it's a whole process that an opinion can be two or 300 pages. We spend a lot of time on those where there's a lot at stake and, and we want to do the very best to document in detail what the consequences are. There are less formal memos all the time, both internally to files and for clients. Often a client will want to have some internal documentation that, well, I'm putting this on a tax return. What's the support for that? And so we'll write them a memo and they, they put it in a file. That's a lot. And then one other thing that I, I think is a bit unique to tax is because there's a lot of deal work, we spend a lot of time making slide decks, not that cover technical material, but the slide deck actually depicts the steps of a transaction and describes all the different tax consequences, often from several different jurisdictions, a very complicated business deal or various M&A activity. And that is another kind of communication where we have to coordinate with folks from around the world on, on a cross-border deal to make sure that that we're all seeing eye to eye about how something how something's treated. And when you're using those slide deck or presentation type communications, is the reason for using them primarily that they give you a little more visual ability to show something as opposed to say something in words? What's the reason for that as opposed to a sort of standard classic 1L formal memo? There is a diagram convention in tax. There are different legal entity types. They have different tax treatment and we draw them differently. We depict ownership differently. We depict debt differently. We depict transactions with respect to debt or equity differently. And a picture is such a good shorthand to just understand what is happening if you speak this visual language. And then some words on the side tell you tell you the consequences, but you need to see in a deal like this, you're dealing with legal entities that have tax significance separate from being a large company in the way that we would think about it. And so when company one buys company two, that can involve thousands of legal entities and you need a picture. There's no way that you can just write a narrative and understand exactly what's happening. Fascinating. Look, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about sort of your decision to become a tax lawyer and also some takeaways from that process might be for others who are sort of either thinking about the path or maybe on the path right now. We've discussed your path to law school generally. You are a self-described sort of late bloomer. What was your drive to attend law school and when did you make that decision and sort of how did you make that decision? After college, I didn't have a good undergrad experience and I, I got a job at a, a plaintiff's firm doing multimedia presentations for trials, mediations, arbitrations. And you know, whenever there was a presentation, I would sometimes carry a, an eight by eight screen 
and um, a projector around the state of Pennsylvania or other things, but I worked for lawyers and I liked working for lawyers. It was hard and lawyers are, we all have our quirks. And so it was not necessarily easy, but I liked the way, I liked what that was like professionally. And it brought out a better and more mature version of me being responsive to that and being responsive to client demands. And so law school made sense after that. And I really enjoyed law school. I went into tax for interview opportunities. At Georgetown, there are various on-campus interview programs. And I went through one and didn't have much luck. And I'd enjoyed a single tax class. And I got an email about, actually, if you join the LLM program, there's a whole interview program that you can do another time. And so I was just looking, I mean, like a lot of people buy 2L, really everything you do in school is trying to find a job afterwards. And I said, okay, if there's an interview program, I like the one tax class I've taken. Sure, I will sort of softly commit to taking more tax classes and potentially getting an LLM. And then I just loved it. I did well in the classes. And unlike other areas, I think actually evidence is, is, is a good analogy. There are a lot of sort of examples, practical questions that you're asking, and you need to have examples and work through them all the time, have concrete answers in a way that, you know, is almost the opposite of 1L, where there's nothing concrete. And it was great. It was great. I, I really thrived in it, um, you know, eventually did get a job out of one of the tax-specific interview programs. And, and and haven't looked back. What I love about that also, and this, you are not the first person to tell a version of this story, is the great part about a law degree is you can do almost anything with it. The hard part about a law degree is that you can do almost anything with it. And so at certain times, seeing what the market wants is not a terrible way to at least figure out what to try. My favorite version of that was someone last last year told me that in his interview, what he asked the partner that was interviewing him was he said, he was asked, what do you want to do? And he said, well, what are you paying people to do right now? And the partner kind of appreciated that. But at the same time, it wasn't something that you weren't interested in and didn't fit your skill set. It was just something that let you have another opportunity. And it kind of worked out. I guess the follow-up to that is tax is one of the rare areas in the law where you do kind of need to have get a specialized degree, or at least many people do get LLMs in tax. And that's, you know, at least from my perspective, very uncommon in other practice areas. Talk to me a little bit about LLMs, how what it was like for you, and also sort of how it why it makes sense for tax practitioners as opposed to other areas. It makes sense because you need to know something about different specialty areas that it's very hard to pick up dry. Just starting to work in tax as you know a rotation through a large law firm, and you you know you spend some time in the tax department. There are a lot of basics that just aren't there, right? And, and it would be very hard to pick up dry. So I think an LLM, it's a survey of what you need to know to start asking tax questions. You need to know things about when income is recognized and when you might be taxed on it. About, this is where I learned a lot of the conventions about writing and diagrams and silly things like that. But starting on my first day of work, I actually knew a few things. Not about the hard questions that we'd be answering for clients, but I, I did speak some of the language, and I, I think that's the best way to put it. My cousin started law school a few years ago and was struggling with networking and just making connections in, in the hope of finding a job. And something that I said to him was that at a certain point, if you focus on 
a specialty area, you will speak the language that the practitioners speak. You'll just have turns of phrase that are common in the area. And in an interview, that does so much to just show you've spent enough time marinating in, in the specialty area to be able to speak the way you know the natives speak. And that's something that the LLM does better than you know anything that you could do by yourself. And are all the people who do what you do lawyers with LLMs, or are there other paths to the kind of work that you do? No. I work with CPAs who aren't attorneys. I work with attorneys with LLMs. I work with attorneys who are not LLMs. Frankly, most of our hiring today is lawyers with LLM. Those are the people out of school. But that's more of a process reality. Exactly. If you want this job out of school, that's where we're looking. But there are other people who start in tax through some other path, and we're always we're always obviously looking looking for them. It's not exclusive, but if you happen to know that you want to do tax, it's the easiest way to let the rest of the world know. Interesting. I also really like that idea of speaking the language. I think that law school is a lot about learning a language, and people say, oh, well, I'm a lawyer, so I know what a tort is, and it's not a dessert or a type of sandwich or anything like that. But you're absolutely right that practice areas also have languages. And so when people sometimes ask me, my students ask me, what classes should I take? Do I have to take X class? And I say, you basically have to take no class, except the ones that are required by your law school. Like, I never took corporations, and I was fine by corporations on the bar, and I worked with businesses. I still don't know as much as others who took corporations, and I probably should have, but I didn't. But by taking a variety of classes, you learn the basics of of what languages are out there and which ones you want to take. It's almost like intro to a foreign language, but I hadn't really thought about it that way. And I think that's pretty powerful. Obviously, like you practice, you know, as you said, in a particular niche in a particular type of company. Can you talk, sort of zoom out a little bit and talk about the other lawyers that work in the tax sphere or even in your tax sphere, but may not work at an accounting firm? Sort of what do those people do and how, to the extent you know, how is it different from what you do? Most big law firms have some number of tax practitioners. There was one tax job in the world that I knew I didn't want coming out of school, and and I, I was fortunate enough to learn about it. Where large law firms have very small tax departments, often that tax department isn't really a department in and of itself, but it sits under an M&A or a corporate team, and it's just there to manage the tax risk because people are doing deals and you have to be, you need some tax people. When I found folks in that space, that can be a less fulfilling job because you don't have your own independent relationships all the time. You do sometimes, but but a lot of the time work comes to you because it's in the firm and, and they need tax advice. That's one version of tax. I think the polar opposite is there are a lot of people who have one or two clients, sometimes in in, in you know large law or accounting firms, and I see a lot of people you know, hanging shingles very young because they have a few relationships. They have some friends who went into business and everyone needs to file tax returns. But my, my screen name, wherever I need a screen name is death and taxes. Um, and, you know, with whatever number I have to put after it, there will always be a demand for tax work. You can find a few a few clients who will always need tax work and and that can support you. I think that's probably the other polar extreme and there's a lot of space in the middle. There are a lot of 
specialists. I guess is the other point is just because tax can be so complicated, especially in the U.S., there is a lot of specialty. People know what firms do a lot of asset management, work with a lot of asset management clients versus big corporate clients, work in cross-border versus corporate. There are a lot of, of ways to slice up the tax pie. Awesome. So look, we're getting towards the end of our time, so I just want to ask two more questions. And the first is a little bit about how your business or your sort of day-to-day life has changed in terms of the way the world has changed. You know, it sounds like a lot of what you do is with other people, in addition to all the work that I'm sure you have to do to prepare to be with those other people. But obviously the world is changing. And so something that I've been asking a lot of guests is sort of, what's the result of that change? And what is this practice going to look like going forward, just on a day-to-day basis, given sort of the move to remote work, more technology, sort of any pieces like that? I joke that I've been in this one room in my house for two, almost two and a half years, right? I, I can do everything I need to do from home. I bought a new printer. Um, I bought a new desk. But this work can be done remotely. And again, for more junior people, this is all upside. It used to be that there were a lot of client meetings and I worked with people who were on planes constantly, but clients are only buying X number of plane tickets. And so if you're the fourth or fifth person on a particular client, you're not going. You know, you stay behind and sit in your office and maybe you get to dial in. Maybe you're taking notes and doing some research in the background to help, but it doesn't cost to add another person to a video call. And so I've gotten a lot more FaceTime with clients since we've gone remote. And it's been great for me without having to be a road warrior, right? without having to fight that life of being on the road all the time and, and away from my family. I think it's almost all good. We are learning that some things that we took for granted and never planned don't happen organically when we're not in the same physical place. Informal kinds of training where you just sort of wave someone in and have them listen in, right? Where you just sort of sketch something out quickly and tell someone to look at something and or share. It's the informal communication that just doesn't happen usually because you always have to affirmatively press a button. You can't just, you know, overhear a conversation and stick your head in. Um, and so I, I think everyone's working on that. We are trying to find technology and digital solutions to that. But I, I think that's that's the the biggest negative change. But but overall it's been it's been great. Just, you know, again, just speaking for for my day-to-day, I used to talk on the phone a lot, and I have built relationships with people who I see on video in a different way, and really good, strong relationships. People call me regularly all the time, and I look at them, and we solve a problem together, and I know that we're building strong relationships that are hopefully going to last a long time. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, because I, I just saw someone post on LinkedIn literally today, kind of just yelling at young lawyers that they should stop asking to work remotely and that the only way to learn to be a lawyer is to be in the office. And like separate from the fact that that requires all the supervisors to be in the office too for that sort of theory to work. You know, I do think there is that challenge. The way I sort of think about it with my own students is that everything is a lot more scheduled, right? It's like you don't have even office hours, right? You need a calendar. You need to let people in from the waiting room, it almost feels a little more transactional. You have to plan it. You have to get on somebody's calendar. But if that's the worst thing that happens, as long as I think juniors ask to be participants and and more senior and mid-level people encourage them and invite them in, I think you're right that this move can can actually be one of benefit to younger lawyers or more junior lawyers and other professionals. 
as opposed to just a curse. I do want to acknowledge many ways that it's harder. You have to send an email to ask a follow-up question or schedule time. You can't just poke your head in. And sometimes when you don't know and you're frustrated about not knowing, you want to be able to just poke your head in and not send an email trail about how you don't know things, and especially when you're starting out. And so I, I have seen that it's harder and we're trying to find informal ways to have conversations that can turn into questions about work that people just want to happen to ask without having to call attention to it. There are a lot of difficulties to making everything more formal, especially for junior people who don't have the confidence to know, yes, I should use 30, 60 minutes of other people's time to help solve this problem. Yes, it's actually a priority. I should get everyone in a room and we should solve this problem together, which is often the answer, but you just don't know. And and, and for more junior people don't necessarily have the confidence to say, I'm scheduling a meeting and all of you other people who I work for have to show up. And is the answer just to encourage those people to ask and build relationships with people just sort of one or two levels above them on the org chart. What's the thing you would recommend to somebody who's starting off sort of in your world to sort of get started in this new environment? It's all about relationships. It's about people who you can just ask a quick question to without having to think about it. But I do think through the formal work that we do, we can reaffirm that all of this works because there are junior people who actually do pay an important role. That's lost so often that like, junior lawyers are costs is like is often this thing oh the rates are so high and so we can't have but but actually they are doing work that needs to be done and so reminding them their part of the work is necessary and when they have questions the work can't get done until they answer the questions and so it's important to the more senior people to help answer the questions so that work gets done that part of the conversation happens so rarely that's just not where we are in the law economy right now. But reminding junior lawyers that their work is valuable, I think, makes everything else important. Because, of course, if you're doing valuable work and you have a question, you should ask. Absolutely. And you said earlier that one of the first things that those lawyers tend to get, and I think this is true in lots of areas, not just tax, is fact development. And I think sometimes lawyers are like, what What did I do? I like, you know, I went to all this school. I took the bar exam to sort of like learn what happened three years ago and draw up a timeline. And my view is, and it sounds like maybe yours is the same, like if you own that and know those facts better than anybody else, that's the first step to gaining trust of a team. And someone needs to know those facts because you are going to be the person who knows them the best. Yes. Yes. And few things are as fact intensive as tax. Who is sitting where in the world doing what? Who's doing product design? Who's doing R&D? who's a distribution, who's a salesperson. These are all business functions and where they are in the world and how much is happening where. It, it's all crucial to understanding. And when I mentioned I worked on client matters for lots of different clients, I cannot keep all of those facts straight at the point that I've reached in my career. And so someone who can makes it all work, right? If they can tell me this is how this client's business operates, then we can answer their questions. 100%. Well, look, I'm going to ask you the last question that I always ask everybody when I do these interviews, which is for a piece of advice. I'm saying that to you as I know you've listened to many of the episodes and I great, have grateful appreciation for all your help. But what is something that you sort of wish you knew as a law student or a recent grad that you know now? It's something that I actually mentioned earlier. It's about how the experience of practice changes after, you can call it 10,000 hours or five years. At a certain point, the pieces actually do fit together. You can see the forest and not just individual trees, and you can develop some of the judgment 
that you observe from other people where they're not doing analysis, right? They're just saying this is better without doing analysis. How are they doing that? It comes with time. At the beginning, you can look at a picture and not understand what's going on at all and be confused by how anyone can, but it does happen in time. Be patient with yourself when you're starting out. You, there's no way for you to know all of it, but it will come. Absolutely. I think that's so true for lawyers. I think it's true for law students too. You know, I think it, what we do is unique and it's hard. And I think what you do is particularly unique and particularly hard, but you're absolutely right that judgment comes over time and reps. And you can't, like the joke I tell my lost, my one else every year is you can't have 10,000 hours landing airplanes and at some point have your first landing. You don't tell the passengers that it's your first landing, but the only way to get the skill of landing a plane is to land it a couple of times. And that's just the reality of it. And once you've done it, it's not like a gradual shift. Sometimes it's a big jump shift. It's, you know, flatline, flatline, then big jump, then flatline, flatline, then big jump, then flatline. And then hopefully you just keep growing in your career as I know you will and as I certainly have. I'm going to add, you kept going up. Sometimes you take a step back. Sometimes you make some mistakes and, and you feel like you're losing and that's okay. That happens to a lot of people too. I love it. All right, Micah, this has been so fun. I'm so grateful that you uh, joined the show and uh, you know, can't wait to continue our conversations. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jonah. Again, I am Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.